Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the intersection of history and genealogy with Alonzo Felder, author of Discovering A.S.J. Allen, a story of skin folk, kin folk, and village folk. This is 1904. A black farmer is shot and killed by the white next door neighbor, and the local authorities just were going to brush this off as justifiable homicide. We'll discuss enterprising rural women in Florida. Farm women saw an opportunity to sell chickens, eggs, butter, milk, and cheese to town women and developed local consumer relationships. And we'll talk about the 1924 fire truck Grandma. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Alonzo Felder is author of the book Discovering A.S.J. Allen, a story of skinfolk, kinfolk, and village folk, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. The Reverend A.S.J. Allen was a respected African-American community leader in Alachua County, Florida. In 1904, he was killed by a white neighbor over a property border dispute. Alonzo Felder is the great-grandson of A.S.J. Allen, but he never heard much about his ancestor growing up. I heard almost nothing about him. As I was growing up as a, a kid, I lived in the house with my grandmother and my mother. Grandma had a picture on her dresser that I literally saw every day of, of my life. And it was of her dad, of ASJ. And I had asked a couple of times, you know, hey, who's this? And she would say, oh, this is my daddy. Where is he? And it was crickets. All I ever knew was he was killed over some form of racial violence, but we just don't talk about it. When Alonzo Felder's mother became ill and then died in the late 1990s, he felt the need to research his family history. Felder's mother was an only child. She turned 40 just after he was born, so all of Felder's relatives were much older. His closest relatives were the siblings of his grandmother. So I spent a lot of my years growing up going to funerals of people who passed away in the family. And the funerals were always at the Mount Nebo Methodist Church Cemetery in Alachua. It seemed like no matter where people lived, what state, country, wherever they dispersed, they always came back to be buried at Mount Nebo. So when mom passed away, I was feeling very much alone, very disconnected from family. So I took a road trip to Mount Nebo and uh, went with a friend of mine and we connected with some of my relatives there, but I went up, took photographs of tombstones, just took notes and started trying to connect with the people that created me. 
And then I got home and I did what every 20th century person does when they want to find wise and sage information. I asked Mr. Google. Felder's Google search of his great-grandfather's name, A.S.J. Allen, brought him to the book Emancipation Betrayed by Dr. Paul Ortiz, who is professor of history at the University of Florida and director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. The quote from the book said that J.L. Shaw, a black farmer, had been killed by his white neighbor, A.S.J. Allen. And I immediately went, oh no, that's backwards. We got to fix this. So that was sort of a, a shocker, but that shocked me enough to contact Dr. Ortiz. We talked, we became best of friends, really. And uh, that started a relationship of me doing even more research. Felder discovered that A.S.J. Allen was so well-respected in his community that African-Americans in Alachua County actively sought justice for his killing. This is 1904. A black farmer is shot and killed by the white next-door neighbor, and the local authorities just were going to brush this off as justifiable homicide. Business as usual, nothing to see here, move along. That did not happen. And that astounded me. I found newspaper clippings of Negroes push the case was one headline. And I learned that the community around my great-grandfather came together, hired two attorneys, one in Gainesville, one from, from Jacksonville, and took this thing to court. Basically said, you've crossed a line. You can't just keep doing this and getting away with it. No more. Although it was a victory that the case even made it to a courtroom, this was Jim Crow era Florida, and A.S.J. Allen's white neighbor suffered no consequences for killing him. Still, Alonzo Felder was inspired by the story. It then became more than just, I'm feeling lonely and disconnected and an orphan for my own family. I want to find out who in the world is this character, because I know that if you, as a Black person, especially early 1900s, you rub up against and buck against the status quo, your town can be burned down. Your neighborhood is gone. You're kicked out of your house. There's all sorts of retribution. And it just piqued my interest to find out what kind of character is this that the, he so emboldened a community of poor farmers to come together and, and risk so much to say no? So that's kind of what got me started. Discovering A.S.J. Allen, a story of skinfolk, kinfolk, and village folk, can be seen as three books in one. The story of A.S.J. Allen is told throughout. It also describes Alonzo Felder's personal journey of self-discovery. By sharing his research process, Felder also provides a practical guidebook for others seeking to discover the stories of their ancestors. The reason I did that and why that's important to me is we are, in the last decade especially, we're experiencing this upheaval in interest for genealogical research and family history story. Uh, there's so many television shows on family magazines and, and pamphlets coming out where people are discovering who their ancestors were and finding out more about them. And one of the things that I note is that a lot of this seems to be very celebrity-oriented. 
which is great. It makes for great television and no shade on the celebrities. But one of the, the things that I've noticed is that you have, say, an hour-long program with 30 minutes worth of commercials. And by the end of the show, you are presented with this document that tells you your family history all the way back to Charlemagne or, you know, Jesus or something, you know, extraordinary. And it kind of leaves you with a sense of, wow, this is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to do. And it's fairly quick. And I buck against that because I love research. This book took me over 10 years to write. I didn't know I was writing a book. I was just doing the work. But it's over 10 years worth of work involved here. And I want people to understand that when you decide to dig into family story, there's a lot involved. It's not quick. It's not easy. And you really have to be okay with this is going to take a while and it's going to be somewhat frustrating. And I wanted to kind of create the book in a way that outlines, here's what you're getting yourself into. Felder says that despite the challenges involved in researching and documenting family history, it's rewarding work. The subtitle of Discovering A.S.J. Allen is A Story of Skinfolk, Kinfolk, and Village Folk. The term skinfolk was popularized by Zora Neale Hurston when she wrote, All My Skinfolk Ain't Kinfolk, meaning that all black people are not related and have different opinions and experiences. Felder encourages people to find their own unique family stories. Kinfolk refers to family, of course, but Felder hopes that people doing family research will think beyond biological relatives. When I look at the 1930 census of the house that I grew up in, so I've got my mom, my grandmother, and throughout the Depression, Grandma used our house as a boarding house, and it helped a lot of people sort of get through some very hard times. Listed in the borders that lived in our house is a woman that I grew up with that I always knew as Aunt Rose. I was an adult, graduated from college, one day sitting in her living room talking when I discovered that Aunt Rose was really not my aunt. There is no biology between us, but she lived in the house. And when I came along, that was my aunt. And she was just as much a relative as any of ASJ's children were to me. Most people are familiar with the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. Felder says the idea of village folk goes even further. None of us grow up and live in a vacuum where we're surrounded by people who are neither skin folk nor kin folk, but they are a part of our story. And in the case of ASJ Allen, I look at the community around him, the people that he ministered to as, as a pastor, the people he performed marriages for, the lawyers that were hired, the fraternal organizations that, that came up and just showed up when the need arose. So those are the folks in the village. Felder's book provides us all with important information about an insufficiently documented part of Florida history and offers inspiration and guidance to those seeking to find their own family stories. Felder says his book has been well-received by his extended family. 
the emails and phone calls that I've been getting have been absolutely wonderful of thank you for telling the story. Thank you for researching the story, because a lot of my family, we knew pieces of the puzzle, but no one had ever put it all together. So uh, I've got family that still live in the Alachua County area, and they knew little pieces of what had happened, but that whole experience of trauma was such that, well, this is hurtful, this is painful, and we don't really want to go there. So they weren't getting all the story. And then other people who live further away, we knew what we'd been told and what we, what we heard from, from elders in the family, but that was incomplete. So folks have been really appreciative of me trying to put it all together. Alonzo Felder is author of the book, Discovering A.S.J. Allen, a story of skinfolk, kinfolk, and village folk, published by Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum being held with the Florida State Genealogical Society Conference May 18th through 20th in Lakeland. Alonzo Felder and many other presenters will be there. Afternoon tours will include a visit to Florida Southern College to see the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, rural women of the late 19th and early 20th centuries were more active in their societies than people might think. Most people imagine a nostalgic past in which rural women were silent, submissive, and engaged in domestic work, with few opportunities or inclinations to interact with the larger world. History paints a more complex picture of female participation in farm organizations, rural churches, literary clubs, and social activism. As William Cronin demonstrated in his study of late 19th century Chicago and the Great West, town and country were more interdependent than originally supposed. Articles in the Florida Historical Quarterly confirm that women engaged in a variety of activities across the supposed town and country boundaries. By the 1920s, younger women were driving cars, graduating from high school, and taking jobs in town. If not quite as progressive as their city sisters, they were on the road to modernity. An important and often overlooked vehicle for modernization was the Home Extension Service, the gendered counterpart of the Cooperative Farm Extension Service, which was created in 1914 through the federal Smith-Lever Act. The Extension Service represented a cooperative partnership between the USDA, state land-grant colleges, and county governments that placed college-educated farm and home agents in every agricultural county in the United States. These agents were tasked with bringing scientific agriculture and progressive home management to American farms. 
while farmers learned the benefits of contour plowing, hybrid seeds, chemical fertilizers, and mechanical planting and harvesting, their wives and daughters received instruction on sanitation and nutrition, food preservation, and home management. Rural children joined 4-H clubs organized by extension agents, where they also received hands-on training in modern agriculture and domestic science. Boys raised calves and pigs, and girls joined tomato and canning clubs. They competed for prizes at county fairs and learned public speaking and civics. Rural reformers believed that 4-H boys and girls would reinforce the information their parents received from extension agents and would use their lessons and experiences as foundations for their own futures as modern farmers and farm wives. Connie, these farm wives were hard workers in their own right and also provided additional workers for family farms, right? Yes, the work of farm women was an intricate web of production and reproduction. The prosperity of family farms was directly related to the number of children who could provide necessary labor for planting and harvesting and the care of farm animals. Until farms were more fully mechanized, large families were the norm. Pregnancies were spaced two to three years apart, and older children assist with the care of younger siblings. Women were also responsible for the production of chickens and eggs, butter and cheese, kitchen gardens, and the cooking and preservation of meats, fruits, and vegetables. They sewed and washed the clothes the family wore and nursed family members through sicknesses and injuries. As rural towns grew in size and began adopting the urban reforms of larger cities, they abandoned the raising of chickens and pigs and cows within the city limits. In these progressive reforms, farm women saw an opportunity to sell chickens, eggs, butter, milk, and cheese to town women and developed local consumer relationships for their farm products. By the 1890s, as the profits from women's production increased, the USDA and rural reformers were encouraging farmers to allow their wives to manage their own earnings, an idea that initially met some resistance. With the arrival of home extension agents, farm women's production expanded and became more standardized to meet the expectations of a more discerning consumer market. Curb markets met the local demands for farm products, but many farm communities organized production for distant markets in larger cities, creating agricultural cooperatives, negotiating with railroads for transportation, and creating name brands. Seed companies took notice and marketed their chicken feed to women, packaging it in brightly colored and patterned cotton fabric that could be washed and used to make aprons and children's clothing. And Florida farm wives had a unique opportunity to participate in the growing tourism industry. Indeed they did. In a Florida Historical Quarterly article, Catherine L. Beasley argues that Florida's environmental diversity and its natural agricultural and horticultural resources created economic opportunities that enabled women to tie their production to the emerging state tourism to create a mutually beneficial experience of marketing Florida. Drawing on the Extension Service publications and the annual narrative reports required of each county agent, Beasley documents the development of new products, the expansion of markets, and the profits farm women realized. 
County and state fairs and farm institutes provided opportunities for women to demonstrate their innovations in the creation of preserves, ice cream flavors, and refreshing fruit drinks that reflected Florida's perceived Edenic paradise. Although Florida women marketed more traditional products that could be found throughout the South, it was this production of uniquely Florida agriculture that Beasley forefronts. Citrus fruits, guavas, avocados, and other tropical fruits were transformed into products that could be packaged for sale to the tin can tourists and winter visitors. Presumably, these tasty reminders of their trip to Florida could be transported home to all their neighbors. In addition to devoting time and physical space to the production of these delicacies, farm women created labels to identify their products, developed packaging to attract buyers, and opened markets unique to Florida. Beasley cites several examples of women who built small sheds or outbuildings specifically for producing and packaging their preserves, jams, and crystallized fruit. They also recognized the value of the sale of gift packaging that artfully arranged their products in handmade baskets. Finally, in addition to curb markets, they sold their products to hotels to be placed in gift shops. Connie, did these efforts to sell goods to tourists have a significant economic impact? It did. Beasley's research indicates that a number of women were deriving a modest income from their efforts. As home agents in Florida and across the South recognized the importance of this new income, they created suggestions for its use. From the perspective of agents, the income could be used most beneficially through the purchase of new technologies to make farm homes and the domestic work of women more efficient. Ice boxes and refrigerators headed their lists of potential purchases, followed by electric stoves and washing machines for those who had access to electric power. Women and their families had other ideas about the order of purchases. Radios headed their lists. Access to the larger world with its news and entertainment, as well as its farm and marketing information, made more sense than refrigerators and stoves. Women also set aside some of their butter and egg money, or in Florida's case, preserve and fruit money, to educate their children. Mid-20th century stories from college-educated men and women routinely credit their mother's small savings with providing the essential funding for their college tuition. Nor is this unique to the United States. International economists note that the microeconomies of poor women are responsible for the upward mobility of their children as they invest in their education. Studies of rural women recognize the institutional, geographic, monetary, and social barriers that farm women faced, but they also highlight the ways in which these women initiated changes as they interacted with town women and extension agents in the early 20th century. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. I was born in the country, that's a natural fact. On these long city days, I want to look back to see tobacco fields, row after row, red clay cracking where the silver queen grows. This is Florida Frontiers. We've talked about the 1924 fire truck Old Betsy on the program. Now Holly Baker introduces us to Grandma. 
1924, the Rockledge Fire Department in Brevard County purchased a new American LaFrance pumper known as Fire Engine 1. Almost 100 years later, that fire engine, affectionately known as Grandma, is still in service. Rick Nix was the fire chief for the city of Rockledge for almost 30 years, until he retired in 1998. We talked about his time as the Rockledge fire chief and his memories of Grandma the fire truck. When we moved to where we live now, and we still live there, it's four doors up from the old fire station I showed you the picture of. And uh, that's really where I got my interest. The guy across the street was the volunteer fire chief, the oldest fire chief in numbers of years served up to that point until I came along and beat him out. But uh, he'd go to a fire, and I'd run across the street and get in his Hudson Hornet car, and we'd go to a fire. I'd stand limp in his car. I couldn't do anything. I was just 12, 13 years old. He got me interested in the fire station, so I'd walk down and hang around the station as much as they would let me. They had a pool table. I learned to play a little pool down there. They just told me, said, you seem to like this. Why don't you join the volunteer department? I was told from the time I was in high school till I got established in the regular paid fire department that that's what I was going to do. The volunteer says, you will be the next fire chief. This is when I was 15, 14 years old. And I said, sure, I will. When he joined the volunteer fire department at the age of 15, Rick Nix became one of the primary caretakers of Grandma the fire truck. Well, the truck was bought in May 1924. That's the same year that the Rockledge Volunteer Fire Department became incorporated as part of the city of Rockledge. Just kind of evolved over the years into the Rockledge City of Rockledge Fire Department. It's been in every Christmas parade that I can think of clear back to the 20s. And uh, the Rockledge High School, it's Cocoa High School, and cheerleaders liked it. So I hauled them around on it. Most every place they wanted to go that was local because they'd like to be seen on it and because uh, no, other, no other school in the county that I know of had a fire truck for the cheerleaders to ride on. Still in pretty good condition. It's been well taken care of. Yeah, it's in good shape. We rebuilt it one time. We stripped it down and painted it and kind of rebuilt everything but the engine in the late 70s, 1970s. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's been well maintained. I asked Rick Nix to explain how to operate the fire truck. Well, it's a secret. <laughs> it's got a secret or two to it. Even the shifter, you know, first second, the old cars that had three on the floor, this one is French shift. First is where third is, second is where reverse is on a regular car, and third is where first is. Then when you put it in reverse, you're in really where second is on an American car. So it's French, it's backwards, because it's reversed, it's flipped. So you drive from the right side instead of the left side. For almost 100 years, Grandma the fire truck has been in service to her community. You can still see Grandma out and about in Rockledge, Cocoa, and other nearby Brevard County communities. If you see her in 2024, be sure to wish her a happy 100th birthday. You might even find her old friend Chief Nix nearby. I drove it until I was 80 years old. From the time I was 15, I drove it. I asked him, I said, now, see if you can work it out. I asked Dan Crowley, the lieutenant that's in charge of it now. See if you can work it out with the city. See if I can drive that truck in 24 if I'm still alive, when she's 100. I'd be able to sit on it, but maybe I don't know if I'd drive it or not. But I drove it for 65 years. Chief Rick Nix started off as a teenager volunteering for his local fire department in the 1950s. Now Rockledge Fire Department Station 1 is named after him. Dedicated in 1988, it's called the R.D. Nix Jr. Municipal Fire Complex. I've got to say this, the only reason I was successful, if I was, in other people's eyes, I don't judge myself, is because I surrounded myself with a lot of good people. They made me look good. 
So it wasn't me. It was the staffing and people that worked for me made me look like I knew what I was doing. I've had something most people don't have except for maybe you, a love of my job. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist for the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.